WBUR Podcasts, Boston. You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form, and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. If you want more from the show you're hearing, jump over to that show's feed and hit subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and welcome to the final episode of our special series, Essential Trust, What Trust Is, Why We Need It, and What Happens When It's Lost. I've lost complete faith in my fellow Americans. Not all of them, but a significant number of them. I don't know that we can ever rebuild that in America. There's too many people who want uh, to do damage. And I know it's a very small portion of the population considering, but they're a large part of the voting population. How do we fix that? I am highly skeptical of the government. Um, It's almost impossible to believe that the government is actually, you know, for and by us. Um, it's, It's so hard to believe that they're not listening to, you know, where the money is. You know, it's just hard to believe that our votes even matter. I vote in every single election because I can't not, but it's really difficult to believe that it actually does any good. I've lost trust in the American people. I've lost trust in America. I knew there were racists in America because there are racists everywhere. But the number of people who rejected out of hand The simple statement, Black Lives Matter, that was way beyond anything I could have imagined. I did not imagine the people I work with, the people I live near, my next door neighbors, people I thought were friends, people I went to church with did not believe that black lives mattered. They didn't believe that my life mattered. I've lost trust in America. I've lost faith in the American people. And at my age, there is no time to regain it. That was Cassandra in Norwich, Vermont, Aurora Smith, in Santa Cruz, California, and George Fleming in Williamsburg, Virginia. They are not outliers, because barely 30% of Americans agree that most people can be trusted. Only 38% of Americans trust the medical system. Only 11% trust television news. And just 7% of Americans say they trust Congress. That's according to research from the group NORC at the University of Chicago that's been tracking general society trends since 1972. So as we heard from a guest, Jamil Zaki, in episode two of our series... We are living through a massive trust recession and that is hurting us in a number of ways that probably most people are totally unaware of. Well, today, in our final episode of Essential Trust, we are asking, can trust be rebuilt? 
between individual Americans, and between you and the institutions of this nation? And if so, how? Well, we're turning to Robert Putnam to help us answer those questions. He is one of America's most renowned political scientists, author of many books, including Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, also Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, and The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Robert Putnam, welcome to On Point. Thanks very much. Magna, it's a delight to be here. As you probably know, I'm a huge fan of your show, so I'm honored to be on it. <laughs> well, we're honored to have you, Professor Putnam. Also with us today is Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Hello, Professor Putnam. Please stop calling me Professor. <laughs> that, that is, I'm Bob. Okay. <laughs> well, um, uh, Bob and Jack, and, and Bob, I'll first start with you. Uh, those Americans who we heard from at the top of the show just now, they had reached out to us when we asked folks to tell us about, you know, what are their levels of trust in their fellow Americans. I think the thing that I find most arresting about them, those uh, people who contacted us is that you can hear their heartbreak in how they are losing trust or have lost trust in their fellow Americans. It's not something that anyone wants or enjoys. I mean, Bob, did you hear something similar? Oh, yeah. Uh, th th what Those people are perfectly typical of Americans today. And, and Jack, what do you think about the fact that um, there's almost this like national mourning that we can't trust each other anymore? Yes, and it's such a change from the circumstances of my young manhood. I mean, Professor Putnam Bob points out in the early 1960s, nearly two-thirds of Americans trusted other people. But two decades into the 21st century, two-thirds of Americans do not. That, what a reversal. Yeah. So, so what's going on here? Before we figure out, like, how to... Uh, reverse the, that reversal. I, I want to understand from both of you, Bob Putnam, let's start with you. Why do you think there's been this trust recession, as we've been calling it this week? Can I make a um, preliminary point, Magda and Jack? Um, it's There's a distinction that has been made in all of the sessions you've done this week between trust and trustworthiness. Um, and that's an important distinction between because trust without trustworthiness, that is trusting somebody who's untrustworthy, is not a virtue. That's gullibility. And we we so the question is, is this a trust recession or a trustworthiness reception, mm. an honesty recession? And I think all the evidence I've seen is, that what we've really been dealing with, this is true with respect to both institutions and other people, is that there's been a recession in trustworthiness over this period. Now, I agree it's much harder to measure trust, trustworthiness than trust for a very simple reason. I can, I can ask you if you trust other people, and you can tell me whether you do or not, but I can't ask you whether you're trustworthy because you have every incentive to um, to mislead me. And therefore, most of the work in this area, not all, and that's helpful, but most of the work in this area has focused on measures of trust of trust 
and therefore has not been able to distinguish between a recession in trustworthiness or recession in trust. Mm. I hope that doesn't doesn't sound like I'm an academic playing with words. It, it's very it's very different. It's um, let me give you a particular example, um, because we do have some measures of trustworthiness over time. We, for example, a study was done uh, beginning uh, in the 1970s when Jack was young and I was younger, um, uh, watching cars behave at a stop sign, I think it was in Westchester, New York, and watching how many people uh, stopped. And in the, in the very, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, which is when the study begins, most people who came to the stoplight, whether there were, I mean, the stop sign, whether there were other cars there or not, would stop. And then they'd go on. They may do a sort of slowly rolling slop, but it was a stop. And then when you get into the 80s, nobody's actually stopping. They're just kind of uh, rolling through, even if there are other people at the, at the stop sign. And finally, in the last of these studies, people just went through the, went through the stop sign regardless. So there we can see that's a, dis, a decline in measured behavior. It's measured behavior following whether you follow the, the rules of the road. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I'll give you another quick example of this that's actually quite fascinating. Um, over the last 40 or 50 years now, um, social scientists have been doing what's called lost letter experiments. That's a case in which you, uh, the researcher um, drops addressed and stamped envelopes, sometimes with money in them, sometimes not, uh, on the street. And they measure how many of those letters are actually returned. So it's a measure not of trust, but of trustworthiness. How, uh, how on average are the people in a given area, people in, you know, walking by that lost letter, how many of them will return it? And we know that that turns out to be a very good measure of trustworthiness. But not only that, it tracks closely with other measures of what people say about trust in those areas. So it, it's in those, and, and for example, these studies have been done national, at, in across countries. And um, I don't remember the exact numbers mm -hmm. now, but so, if you, in, if in Stockholm, roughly 75%, 80% of those letters are returned. And in Palermo, roughly 10% are returned. Huh, okay. Um, and so you can use tests like that to, to try to get at what have been the trends in trustworthiness. Yeah. And I'm trying to say we should rephrase our question. I, I think this is an important question. What, what's going on here? But we should rephrase that as a, why could we have had this honesty recession? Okay. Or trust... Yep. Yeah, yeah. So so I actually take your point. And I, I agree. Um, let us rephrase it as a trustworthiness recession, because then that, that actually makes it an even more compelling question regarding uh, uh, American institutions. But I wanted to give Jack another a chance here um, in, in this segment. Jack, do you, what do you think about this idea of refocusing on trustworthiness as really um, the, the recession that we should be concerned about in, in America? Well, it, you know, there's something encouraging about it. It says that reform of institutions might lead to greater uh, trust beyond even... In other words, by making the institutions more trustworthy, we would trust them more. 
And and uh, Bob, you talk about your uh, dealing with uh, President Clinton, and he he was very concerned to make government work so that people would trust it more. And so, uh, in other words, he said, "Let's make government trustworthy, and then people will trust it." Hmm. Well, we're going to talk about that more when we come back uh, in just a moment. This is episode five, our final episode of our series, Essential Trust, and I'm joined today by Robert Putnam and Jack Beattie, and we'll have more in just a moment. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's our final episode of our series, Essential Trust, What Trust Is, Why We Need It, and What Happens When It's Lost. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst, and Robert Putnam is with us as well. He's a uh, emeritus professor of public policy at Harvard University, author of many books, including Bowling Alone, one of the most famous books when it comes to um, understanding uh, America's psychology. Then there's also Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, and The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Now, we've heard from a lot of On Point listeners about the their loss of trust um, or their belief in the lack of trustworthiness, let me put it that way, in various institutions, including the media. For example, here's Michael Holloway, who called us from Iowa. I have lost faith in the news media's ability to uh, instruct the public on matters of scientific fact, that could be, that trust could be reestablished with me and much of the public, I think, if the news media as a whole were able to distinguish between science and pseudoscience better than what it seems to be able to do. And here's Eduardo, who called us from Miami, Florida. I think Hollywood and all 
public video media has uh, an incredible amount of impact on this subject, considering what a casting person does for a movie. They're exactly looking for a person that has the physical characteristics that represent a certain mode of person. In other words, we're being force-fed or trained how to or who to trust and who not to trust. And finally, Lisa from Rhode Island. I would say very much so that I trust government less and I trust the media less. And even I trust NPR so much less. And and primarily because there's so much influence from corporate entities and from places like the Gates Foundation. Um, and so I see a real difference in the reporting. I think that there's just not the unbiased kind of reporting that there used to be. And it's eroded my trust. I want to thank all of those On Point listeners for their calls, especially or including Lisa. Now, I will stand up for public radio's reporting because, yes, uh, uh, many of the stations do uh, accept financial support from places like the Gates Foundation. But I can tell you uh, that in our coverage, there is no influence in terms of direct influence on the journalism. But... I think the point here, and Robert Putnam, I'm going to come back to you on this, uh, is that uh, there is this belief in the reduction of trustworthiness, which is uh, ringing loud and clear in what Lisa said there. I want to offer this as a potential um, framework for uh, our exploration now, Bob, and and that is, uh, it comes from a, a something we heard a little earlier this week, that trust is, um, or trustworthiness is a measured in a series of promises that have been kept. And that comes from uh, someone we had earlier this week. Now, yes. Yeah. And so, so basically, I think what Americans have been, are saying over the past 20, 30 years is that they feel like many promises to them have not been kept. Now, what I'd like to do is go back in time to the last major part of American history where the feelings were very, were very, very similar and the realities were similar. Where would you point to in U.S. history that we should focus on? Um, yes, thanks, Magna. Um, I, I think the that's the right question um, because one of the things we do know is that there have been ups and downs in trust and trust trust and trustworthiness over the decades. In particular, at the turn of the nineteenth to the twentieth century, at the end of the nineteenth century, let's say what's sometimes called the Gilded Age, uh, in the heat of the American uh, Revolution, the circumstances were extremely similar, as um, my co-author Shailene Romney Garrett and I lay out at some length in the book, uh, The Upswing. The circumstances in America in, um, let's say, 1900, 1890, 1900, were astonishingly similar to the circumstances we face today. There was a very high degree of economic inequality between, let's say, the Upper East Side of New York and the Lower East Side of New York, between the, uh, you know, the Rockefellers and mm-hmm. the other folks who lived on the Upper East Side and the teeming masses who lived, you know, ten miles south on the Lower East Side. Um, so there, that's like today: great, huge, in uh, gap, growing gap between rich and poor. Um, it was a period of great political polarization. Politics was had become tribal. People trusted 
other people and 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 leaders of their own party and didn't trust people across the across the aisle. It was a period of very low social capital. That's my jargon for the connections among people. Uh, low trust, for example, and low trustworthiness, and a period in which Americans were very much focused on I. That's what is, what's in it for me. Um, but then beginning in the first decade of the 20th century, what's sometimes called the progressive era. Now, I mean, let's call it capital P progressive. It's not um, necessarily left or right. The movement of the progressive era was actually very heterogeneous, but everybody in it um, agreed that America was in a in a pickle. Yeah. And in that period, um, a, a number of reforms were undertaken that set America on a course toward greater trustworthiness, toward greater equality, greater um, mm. politi political cross-party uh, uh, collaboration, greater sense that we're all in this together, greater involvement in community organizations and connections with your family and so on. And that long trend, beginning in roughly 1910, let's say, ran all the way up until the, the late 1960s or early 1970s. Yeah. So we had a really long run. That, that's an example of America, I, people just like us, facing a problem just like the problem we today face and turning it around. Well, let me get Jack in here because, Jack, uh, I I do recall that you wrote an entire book about this particular age called The Age of Betrayal, The Triumph of Money in America, 1865 to, to 1900. And obviously you're extremely well versed in the following period that Bob Putnam is talking about um, from 1910 to 1970. So what would you say, Jack, are the particular things um, you know, economic labor reforms, uh, uh, political reform, even that led to uh, what uh, Bob is saying as this rise in trust, uh, institutional, and then also interpersonal trustworthiness in the early 20th century. Well, well you know, uh, a, a couple of things stand out in, in Bob's rich analysis, and that is uh, well, th three things: the condition of this upswing. Or at least, let's put it, I don't want to make it sound causal. In that, you mentioned 1910, Bob. That was the last year of the Southern uh, disenfranchisement, Oklahoma disenfranchised black citizens. And that exclusion of African Americans from the electorate lasted uh, up until 1965. Now, Bob points out there was a long civil rights movement and there was tremendous progress by African-Americans. All true. But as late as 1964 in Sunflower County, Mississippi, which was the home of James Eastland, he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, 13,000 blacks were eligible to vote. Only 160 were registered. Turned out that there were two weeks a month, uh, two days a month, that the registration office was open at the county courthouse. And when people would go there, uh, it, the doors would be locked. So that was America. Bl the condition, one, th one condition, it seemed, of this movement up was blacks are out of the electorate in half the country. The second condition is that in 1924, the United States reversed its open-door policy uh, on immigration and greatly restricted immigration and changed its composition. Uh, and in the 30s and 40s, we had the lowest um, incidence of foreign-born people in the country in, in some decades. Uh, that 
changed in 1965 also when the Immigration Act was signed, which led, as we know, over decades to the browning of, of, of a good deal of America. And the third factor or condition was a war of immense solidarity, at least among white people, the Second World War, a galvanic uh, moment where of national coming together. Well, and that helped fuel the upswing in terms of equality and social trust and the rest. But what do we have in the 1960s? We have another war, the Vietnam War, that drove Americans apart. And so, you know, are the conditions uh, that seem to uh, have, uh, have, have made possible the movement up, blacks out of the electorate, fewer immigrants, a war that unites, all that went away in the 1960s, and we're in a new world of, uh, you know, of, of division among people. And when you look to the future... There's a very suggestive paper called More Diverse Yet Less Tolerant. And these social scientists basically uh, looked at what, asked white people, what do you think about uh, diversity? And they gave their opinions. And they said, what do you think now that we're telling you that we're going to be a majority uh, minority nation in a few years? They became less tolerant. So they were the, the more they knew about diversity, the less tolerant they became. And it led the the uh, the uh, authors to say the increasing diversity of the nation seems to promise a an era of greater group hostility. So, uh, it, it, you know, I'm, am I suggesting that if we stopped immigration, we put blacks back in their place, we had a war that united us, everything would be fine? Not at all. But we have to look at those outside factors and wonder. Did Americans essentially, why was it that the we of me, to use a phrase from a Carson McCullers play, why was that we of me so limited in this period? And why can't we live? Why can't white Americans live with a multiracial, uh, multicultural society? Are they, are they capable of that? Go ahead, Bob. Um, well, that's a rich... Uh uh, account of this period, and Jack is a master of this period. Um, and I don't want to take uh, time to go through point by point, but I do want to say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, the war, the issue of wars. Uh, World War II did have a short run effect on increasing solidarity. All the data shows that, and I argue that in, in this book that Shailene Romney Garrett and I have published, The Upswing. Um, but that, but that. Um, the, the, all these upturns that I've been talking about, increasing equality, increasing um, uh, trust, and so on, um, happened, began to happen 30 years before World War II. And since causes generally precede their effects, um, I think the big story is not World War II created a boom in confidence. It did, but that was short-lived. But the larger trend... The, century, the half century long trend began long before anybody knew there was going to be World War II. Indeed, long before there was even a World War I. Um, on the uh, more complicated issues, I, I certainly agree that the um, that the apparently the upswing uh, was uh, simultaneous with uh, the closure of, of of our borders to immigrants in 1924 and with the exclusion of blacks during the 
during the um, uh, 1930s and 40s and, and 50s and into the 60s. Um, I do also have to add, however, two things to note. It's not an accident that we opened the gates to um, increased immigration, massively increased immigration, in 1964 at the peak of weenus. That is to say, it was when we were most, and you could say either we whites or we Americans, were most open to diversity because of this long 50, 60 year, 70 year upswing. That's when we opened our gates, when we felt comfortable opening our gates. That's when we felt morally obligated to open. And the same thing is true of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement not accidentally occurs at the very peak of our, uh, uh, the broadening of the sense of we in America. So um, on the other hand, Jack is right. That looks like that it took a long time for those changes in culture and changes in economics and, and politics to filter through into actual behavior. Um, and there was a lag, a long lag, between the changing culture of America and the changing um, behavior of Americans. That's, that's always true. I do want to close by saying, however, and this is this part of the same um, message that I'm trying to convey, that social change takes time. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack raised this issue of diversity and intolerance. Jack may not know that actually I wrote myself the first uh, substantial article showing that um, that the more diverse a community, the more diverse a neighborhood, the lower the levels of trust and and other and trustworthiness and so on. So I I can't I'm not going to deny that. Indeed I discovered it, I would say. But but that argument and many, many people have taken comfort from that as many far right people took comfort from from this publication of, of mine. But they didn't read the whole article because what the article said was that's the short run effect of diversity. It takes time to adapt to diversity. And the short run effect of diversity is to craze, make people hunker down uh, like a turtle. Uh, what I said then was that diversity brings out the turtle in all of us, not just whites, blacks, everybody. Um, but that over the long run, a successful immigration society, which we are, finds ways of dealing with diversity and becoming more trusting in the face of diversity. That's the history of our country, Jack, repeatedly over the last, you know this very well, over the last two or 300 years. Every time there's been a burst of immigrants into America, there's been a short run, oh my God, what are we going to do with all these foreigners here? And then over 20 or 30 years, we begin to intermarry and we and we suddenly don't notice those. Otherwise, we people would call foreigners, but now they're just Americans. That's That happened in the 20th century, and it, it, I'm confident it is happening right now among young people in America. Mm. Well, uh, Jack and Bob were getting a lot of comments coming in here uh, online. For example, Tim Wagner tells us on Facebook that, uh, quote, I think we need to acknowledge the damage to general societal and governmental trust inflicted by one party that has found so much success in false narratives and outright lies, compounded by the megaphone of Fox and other right-wing media outlets. Proof of such is simply provided by the fact that going into the midterm, 65% of Republican voters still believe that Biden stole the 2022 election. So Tim asks, how can we have trust in society when public discourse becomes so polluted 
with nonsense. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what can we do now. We're going to try and extract some of the lessons from, you know, the first 70 years of the 20th century and see if and how we can apply those today. So Bob Putnam and Jack Beattie, stand by. We'll be back. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it is our final episode of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. And I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst, and Robert Putnam is with us as well. He's one of the nation's foremost political scientists, author of Bowling Alone, Our Kids, and The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How, and how We Can Do It Again. And today, we're trying to really get a handle on what we need to do as a nation in order to rebuild trustworthiness between each other and trustworthiness in our institutions. And I want to offer this thought from Aurora Smith. You heard her at the very top of the show uh, from Santa Cruz, California. Rebuilding trust starts with a sincere apology, but the real work is done when your actions back up your words. If you say you're sorry, but then you keep making the same mistake or keep following the same pattern of behavior, it's basically impossible to rebuild trust. Okay, so here's what I'd like to offer you, gentlemen. It's coming through loud and clear for every understandable reason that Americans do not believe, let's focus on institutions, that their institutions are trustworthy. And why? Bob, as you said earlier, because institutions have not been working for most Americans. We are right back in uh, an era right now of radical inequalities, right? Economic, social, you know, still many racial in inequalities in almost every sector we can think of, government, healthcare, media, education. So Americans are saying this system that we have right now, this particularly capitalist American system is not working for us. So what I'd like to know is right now there's something different. And the difference is, is that unlike, as, as you and Jack were discussing, unlike in the first half of the 20th century, when trust was in part rebuilt uh, by the continued um, sidelining of certain groups of Americans, we now have an opportunity to create, to have more trustworthy institutions and also have a multiracial, multiethnic, fully uh, politically integrated democracy. I actually don't think we've we've given ourselves that chance before, but we have that opportunity now. So, Robert Putnam, what do our institutions need to do to become more trustworthy? Well, I want to begin with um, something that Tim said uh, just before the uh, break. He said. Um, I'm, I'm uh, putting it's my words, but it's his idea. Um, this is not um, symmetrically caused. It wasn't that both mm -hmm. the right and the left, um, uh, you know, moved polars and moved towards polarization and so on. This is an asymmetric polarization. That's the language of political science. It means it's most of the blame, frankly, lies on 
the Republicans and and in a particular a particular sort of Republicans. And um, so I don't that I don't want to end the conversation there, but I think we have to acknowledge. Uh, even while we're trying to be really, and I tried, I've tried all my life to be very nonpartisan, there there are people on the right edge of the Republican Party who have made it their business to de to delegitimate government, and that's that's a continuing problem. Now, I agree that we can um, that the the short answer is it's a short answer, but hard to implement. Um, we have to got to, we've got to make government work better, and that is that that's that was the Bill Clinton was not a perfect man, but he had the right instinct when he said to me at Camp David, um, Bob, if we're going to fix this problem, we've got to begin with um, making sure you don't have to wait in line to get your license renewed, or making sure that your social security check arrives on time. It's the small things over time that build up. This is what Aurora was saying. Be, rebuilding trust is not just saying, I'm going to do better. It's actually showing step by step, day by day, that the government is working better. Um, and that's, none of this is easy. I mean, if it was easy, we wouldn't have the problem. But it's a, that's that we know that that would work, gradually improving the functioning of government in the daily lives of people. Um, now- but, Wait, can, Bob, can I just jump in here? Sure, I mean, of course. It, 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 you're exactly right. It's simple but very hard to implement. And and I think the challenge that we have to all face here is that there are very, very powerful uh, people uh, and groups that are actively uh, working in opposition of implementing just, you know, things that would make government F work better for people. Uh, you know, we've got Citizens United mucking up the the, the political system. Sure. We have we have the radical you know income inequality. Again, like w with but so so how how do we overcome those when the, it does seem that there's a there's a power asymmetry here too? But Magda, that's and Jack, you 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 should jump in here. Um, all of those challenges were exactly the same in 1890. There were extremely powerful um, monopolies in the economy, an extraordinarily gap, big po power gap between the affluent and the poor. And that that upswing, beginning with the progressive era, doesn't show that it's bound to happen. That's not at all my view. But it shows that it can happen. It actually did happen here. And how did it happen? By ordinary people at the grassroots of America getting together and forming alliances. I don't mean big national alliances. I mean, you know, working in, you know, the place where you live and, and trying to figure out how do we fix the schools here in our hometown. And when you get to that level and work with ordinary people across party lines, that's how we did it the last time. And I don't think that's impossible. Indeed, I know there are hundreds of groups across America right now that are trying to do precisely that. Mm. Jack, go ahead. Well, I'm thinking of this issue of how government can work in our daily lives. Here's an example. I was at the hospital for an appointment, and in line ahead of me was a young woman who was going through hoops with her insurance. I'm sorry we can't. I, we does, it says you're not covered, that the coverage has lapsed. And she, was, she said, well, I need to see, see the doctor. And finally, she just said, I'll see the doctor uh, without the insurance. So there, uh, that seemed to be the, the effect of it. I came up to the, to the clerk and I said, hello. And she said, sign here. And I walked in there without... Uh, uh, insurance issues without paying a dime. Medicare. Man, socialism is great. 
uh, you know, that's an example of government working. I mean, I, it was government. It was an act of government that made it possible for me to just sail right through there. And I, I wish that the young woman could have the same benefit. Now, maybe a more generous welfare state would create a feeling of government being uh, trustworthy and create a feeling of that, that Bob talked about, that generosity of spirit, mm -hmm. that if you're, if you're not so economically insecure, maybe you can be a little more um, caring toward your neighbor. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. So, so Bob Putnam, with that in mind, let me let me get something from you because we had you'd mentioned Bill Clinton a couple of times. Now, <laughs> absolutely far from a perfect man, because you would I could I would argue that uh, you know his embrace of uh, sort of lowering um, the barriers to globalization are part of uh, what has uh, really hurt many people's lives here. We're we're seeing sort of the the outcome of that, but at the same time, you did work with him on. Um, uh, like ideas in the Clinton administration for making government more responsive to everyday concerns. I'd love to hear a sure. little bit from you about that and whether there's evidence that uh, it actually helped in rebuilding, at least for a period of time, institutional trustworthiness. Yeah, um, I'm. it is true that the anecdote that we're working on here comes from a time um, – just after Bowling Alone was published, when he uh, Bill Clinton invited me to Camp David to talk with him and other people about these problems, uh, but I, I, he's not—he would not be my favorite example of a okay. of a uh, of a, a political leader. Actually, my favorite example would be uh, one of his successors, whom I also worked—I worked with even more closely. Forgive me the name drop. I'm sorry. This is disgusting. But I spent quite a bit of time working in the White House with Barack Obama, and. So I'll say something about the Clinton thing. He created something called the Reinventing Government Initiative. And it was a it was at, at the time it was kind of a big deal. And it worked on exactly these little nuts and bolts. How can we make sure that you can get your your um your social security check in time? And that did measurably halt the decline in um in trust in government. Uh, because government was gradually becoming more trustworthy. Now, that was overtaken by lots of other things that happened. Above all, as Jack said, the growing gap between rich and poor uh, was not addressed by, mm. uh, by the Clinton administration. And that's, uh, there are many other things that are going on, but that's the, in terms of people's feeling that the system doesn't work for them, that's the most fundamental thing. This huge, huge increase growing year by year still today between the affluent and the and the have-nots. Um, the, the, when I would, was talking about um, Obama, who has, has, has and had a, a very co a comprehensive understanding of where we are in the world, um, he recognized that it was going to be a long-term slog. He recognized that it required mobilizing a mass base for political reform, mm -hmm. um, exactly as in the, I mean, he was a community organizer. And, and, and therefore, if I had to name a single thing that was a lesson from that earlier period, it was grassroots organizing mattered a lot. Uh, Barack Obama understood that. He didn't successfully implement that in, uh, idea. I mean, there were some efforts at implementing grassroots mobilization in his period, but it didn't work well enough. But that's what exactly needs to happen now. There's a lot of Bernie Sanders stuff that I don't agree with, but the core insight of Bernie Sanders and AOC and the others is that, and, and for that matter, some people on the, in the Republican Party, that 
in order to get, get us out of the mess that we're in now, we've got to begin at the bottom, not in Washington, and frankly, not in talking shops like the one we're engaged in right now. Yeah. It requires me getting together with my neighbors here, right in this little town in New Hampshire where I live, um, to try to figure out how can we help poor kids in this community, in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, how can we help them make better progress and close the gap between their success and the success of the kids of affluent uh, parents in this area. That's it's, It begins at the grassroots in practical change and practical collaboration among Americans. We've done this before. This is not rocket science. Mm. Well, you know, Bob, so this is, uh, we're turning towards the last few minutes here, and this brings us to something else I'd love to hear you on briefly, because I want to also get Jack's response. So in order to really grow and nurture that reconnection of community involvement, that grassroots involvement, then that which would then hopefully ultimately uh, spread to you know, sort of bigger uh, national change, you say we should not hesitate to call for like a, a moral revival in this country? That's an interesting yes. phrase you use. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what you mean. Um, well, look, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about Victorian sexual norms. That's not the, the issue. But I, what I do mean is when we looked, Shailene Romney-Garrett and I looked carefully to see what, whether there are leading indicators the last time this happened, whether things that seem to have been a premise for everything else, we were shocked. I was honestly shocked that it turned out to be a moral change, a, a moral change in the sense of a change from religion as um, focused on my salvation, and and therefore religion too is about me, 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 how, how am I going to get into heaven? A, a change from that into, into what was called then the social gospel. This was, they were sort of evangelical Christians who said, read the darn Bible, read the Sermon on the Mount, read ta Christ talking about how hard it is for the rich to get into heaven, read, talk about the the in the Christian in the original Christian views, God was with the poor, not with the rich. And that change in 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 particular beginning in the, in, among um, evangelical Protestants, but then it quickly spread to other Protestants and to the Catholic Church. and to, uh, there was a similar movement in the Jewish faith at that period, and it gradually spread across the whole country. So when I say we need a moral, reawakening. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, Victorianism. I'm talking about Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Greta Thunberg is framing global warming not as a technical issue, how many pounds per whatever we, we release. She's saying this is a moral issue. The older generations have a moral obligation to be worrying about us, the younger people. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. And I don't think, I think this younger generation is not a is not opposed to thinking about issues in moral terms. The last time I'm I'm finishing, I'm trying to finish quickly here. The last time we did this, that change in our sense of what we owe to other people was the premise for political change and the premise for policy change and the economic changes and so on that followed. Right. So, Jack, I'm going to give you the last word here today because um, I, I hear what, what Bob Putnam is saying, but I would also like to add that I would hope that this... Uh, uh, the sense of a moral obligation doesn't necessarily just come out of houses of worship, right? I think in a, in a secular society like ours, we can we can believe in a civic 
morality that by definition it should be like part of americanness should be the desire to look after our fellow americans right it it should be and there's a, a strong tradition of an american civil religion around memorial day around holidays around and you know it's caught in that wonderful norman rockwell cover freedom of speech the man standing up in the in an assembly hall maybe in jaffrey new hampshire and having <laughs> And having his say and all that, you know, and, and what Bob is saying, this idea of moral change, I just don't know, Bob, where, what's the cause of that cause? How do, you know, in other words, what, how do you, what comes first? Change in institutions, change in morality? Is it self-caused? What, what, why do people become better? Bob, you've got 30 seconds for that one. <laughs> um, Jack, I've, I'm now going to be, uh, I'm going to now reveal the, um, depth of my ambition here. I believe that by preaching last time, we changed people's minds about what they owed to other people. And I don't mean just preaching by me, but I mean preaching by all leaders in America ought to be constantly emphasizing what we owe to one another. Right now, American leaders are not emphasizing that what's really at base here is what we owe to one another. Well, Robert Putnam, his latest book is co-authored. It's called The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. Bob Putnam, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Megna. And Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst. Jack, thank you so much for joining us on this series. Thank you. Well, that's it for our special five-part series called Essential Trust. If you've missed any of our episodes, head over to wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to uh, On Point, and you can hear our Essential Trust series. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.